take your Bibles and join me in Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Our text today begins in Romans chapter 15, verse 14. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are the great king who has died to save your people, but you are risen, you are now exalted, and we are united with you in your death and resurrection and your exaltation, and your victory has secured for us eternal life and glory and never being separated from your presence. So we thank you, and we ask that you will now help us to grasp the riches of your word. Amen. Paul now begins a conclusion to this majestic letter to the Romans. I say he begins because this is the longest conclusion in all of Paul's letters in the New Testament. And on the surface, it is rather practical, isn't it? There's a reminder of his calling and his role as an apostle. It describes the nature and the focus of his ministry. 
He shares his desire to come and visit Rome and explains that there's been no opportunity to do so up until now because of the work of the ministry. But now, given the new circumstances, he has concrete plans to come and visit. This is one of the main reasons that Paul writes this letter. He writes for these plans to share his plans. There's also an urgent errand to Jerusalem with financial aid for the suffering Christians there. And, of course, then this request for prayer. Now, of course, chapter 16 will include greetings to a number of believers there in the church at Rome. It will include some reminders and some warnings and some blessings. These are all normal types of matters that Paul packs in at the end of his letters when he says goodbye. But still, even on all of these practical concerns, Paul is deliberate. These are not just traveling plans. For one thing, you can see how he reiterates several points that he made at the very beginning of this letter back in chapter 1. So for us and those who are part of Crossway and have been here for the last year and a half or so, you got to stretch all the way back to September 2018 and remember chapter 1, or you can just flip in your Bibles. But Paul revisits, he almost restates several things that he says as he begins his letter. In chapter 1, verse 5, he highlights the grace or the stewardship God has given to him to preach the gospel to Gentiles. In chapter 1, verse 8, he affirms the Roman believers like he does here in chapter 15, verse 14. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he asks for prayer and especially a prayer that he might be able to come and visit them. In chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he talks about shared mutual blessing, that he will bless them when he comes, and that he hopes to regain uh, some refreshment and blessing from being in their company as well. In chapter 1, verse 13, he mentions his intention to visit and even explains there, mentions why he has been prevented so far. So you can see, Paul is now coming kind of full circle Back to where he started the letter. The underlying purpose that ties all of this together here in chapter 15 is Paul's goal of forging a gospel partnership with the Roman church. And to do that, Paul uses all of these practical matters to establish bonds, to build these bonds with the church in Rome. Let's see how he does it. First of all, he establishes a bond through apostolic mission. He establishes a bond through apostolic mission, verses 14 through 21. The first thing that Paul does is he affirms the Roman Christians. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. It's not that these believers are self-sufficient. They still need some direction. They still need instruction. Otherwise, why write the letter to the Romans? Why write this epistle? But Paul is acknowledging that they are mature enough 
to receive his instructions and act on them without Paul needing to come and enforce them or oversee them. That was not always the case in every church that Paul wrote to. Sometimes Paul would write and say, do I need to come and enforce this, especially to the Corinthian believers? They were a wild bunch in Corinth, and Paul was always having to restrain and correct them. That's not the way he's writing to the Romans. He's saying, I know you are mature. I know you're going to take these 14 chapters that I've written before this, and you're going to act on them. Nevertheless, he confirms his directions, his commands in this letter, as appropriate. Verse 15, on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. Paul's boldness here is that he has instructed a church that he didn't found. Paul has planted certain churches, and there's a certain relationship that Paul has with those congregations. They know him. He's been there. They look to him as a spiritual father. Paul did not plant the church in Rome. Certainly, they knew who he was. He's not writing to a bunch of people who go, well, who's Paul? But he doesn't have that relationship with them. They've never met him. But what gives him the freedom, or really the right, and the responsibility to write boldly is the grace given him by God. This grace, or we would, might say a, a stewardship, this is an assignment, a commission that Paul received from God. Verses 16 through 21 describe this grace, or this stewardship. Let's highlight Paul's points of interest. First of all, Paul highlights that the Gentiles are his special jurisdiction. Verse 16 is really a metaphor, priestly service. Paul is saying that he is a mediator of the gospel message to Gentiles. A priest stood in the gap between God and sinful human beings to mediate that relationship. Paul is saying that God has called me to mediate the gospel relationship between him and the Gentile world. And so the Gentiles are a kind of offering. Their conversion, their faith is pleasing to God in the same way that a burnt offering was pleasing to God. Their conversion, their faith is the fruit of Paul's labor as he fulfills his commission. And this offering is made holy and acceptable and pleasing to God, not by ceremony, but by the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. The Holy Spirit's presence and work and manifestation is the, the proof that God is at work through Paul's priestly service, his mediating of the gospel to the Gentile world. Secondly, Paul highlights that God's power authenticates his work. In Christ Jesus, then, Paul has grounds to be proud of, literally to boast of, his work for God. We use the word boasting like we would use the word bragging, but Paul isn't talking about bragging here. He's talking about his confidence 
Or a better way to put it would be that Paul's work is his credential or his proof of God's approval, that he is truly called by God to do this. This would be kind of like you or, or me pulling out our U.S. passport, if you have a United States passport, when someone might question our citizenship or our belonging to the United States, we might pull out a passport and say, hold on, this proves my citizenship. That's not a point of bragging, it is a seal of acceptance. That's what Paul's talking about here when he says boast or boasting of. My boast is that Christ has sealed the approval of my ministry by what he has accomplished. This isn't Paul looking for strokes. For him, it's all about what Christ has accomplished through him to bring the Gentiles to obedience. It is obedience of faith, obedience to the gospel. And we've talked about this before, too, because Paul used this same phrase back in chapter 1. How coming to the gospel and believing is actually submitting your life to Christ, which is an act of obedience. Again, the Gentile world is his jurisdiction, and his claims were backed up by power. Christ had accomplished this by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders. So Paul is saying that both in what I said and how I acted and how I served and how I labored and how I suffered by word and deed, Christ has accomplished this in the Gentile world. And accompanying this, these words and deeds is the power of signs and wonders. So there were a super spiritual, hyper spiritual, supernatural Signs and wonders that accompanied Paul's ministry. These were credentials. These were proofs that God was at work. All of this has been done by the power of the Spirit of God. Thirdly, the last thing Paul highlights is that his first course is run. His first course is run. The first leg of his ministry or its first phase has now been completed. Verse 19 From Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. These are just two geographical points. The gospel began in Jerusalem. Paul actually launched out of the city of Antioch. But he sees the origin of the gospel, and his, when he went and visited the elders in the book of Acts in Jerusalem being approved, he sees then Jerusalem as the beginning point for the gospel and he's saying, he's seeing this geographical line to Illyricum, a, a city up in the north of Asia Minor, as kind of a circuit that his ministry has made. And he's saying, I have completed this circuit of ministry. The remarkable part is that he has fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, meaning that all the ground has been covered there whether by Paul or by someone else. You remember there were other gospel bearers. The book of Acts tells us about them. Barnabas in particular. Peter traveled. There were others who were spreading the gospel. Remember Philip the evangelist. So there are other gospel bearers, preachers, proclaimers who are founding churches. 
A great example is the church in Colossae, where Epaphras is converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus and then goes to Colossae and plants a church. So there are churches that Paul hasn't founded, and yet the area is now covered by Paul's estimation. As he elaborates down in verse 22, I no longer have any room for work in these regions. Why? Because Paul doesn't preach where Christ has already been named. That is his calling. He doesn't build on someone else's foundation. His ministry is a fulfillment of Isaiah 52, 15 that he quotes here. Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul takes the gospel to unreached people groups. Now the question is, why does Paul say all of this? What is the value, what is his point to the Romans in reciting all of this about his apostolic ministry? It's not like the Romans are challenging Paul's apostleship and Paul needs to defend himself in some way. That happens at other times with other churches. Paul has to kind of assert his calling and his role as an apostle. Galatians is a good example. 1 Corinthians is a good example. But not here to the Romans. Now, I do think that to some extent, Paul is appealing to his apostolic authority, really his apostolic jurisdiction among the Gentiles, because he is gently validating his right and responsibility to instruct the believers in Rome. He has been given some oversight of them because he is the apostle to the Gentiles, regardless of the fact that he didn't actually plant the church there. But this jurisdiction means something even more important to Paul. And the point that he is making is that because his apostolic mission is the foundation of their shared faith, they share the same gospel mission. That's really what he's after. In other words, Paul says this, my apostolic calling, my apostolic mission plus your faith as mostly Gentiles, there were, of course, Jewish believers in Rome also, but mainly Gentile, my apostolic mission plus your faith equals a partnership that is already established. Even if you've never met me, even if I didn't actually found the church there in Rome... We have been partnered up by God regardless because of what my calling is and because of your faith in who you are. God has partnered us up in the gospel. I have fulfilled one chapter of my ministry. God's plan for the next phase of my ministry as the apostle to the Gentiles is unfolding and you guys in Rome, you're part of it. You're part of that. Rome now is going to become Paul's next launching pad. 
That's how he understands it. So you see how Paul is establishing this bond of gospel partnership through his apostolic mission. He isn't trying to enforce something. He's not trying to defend himself, nor is it just just data that he's giving them or reminding them. Paul's actually building a relationship and a rationale, a theological, missional reason why they should support him. They are part of his mission. I want us at Crossway Fellowship, we as a church, to be ready to participate in the apostolic mission as the Lord opens up partnerships for us. And we pursue a number of those partnerships. The orphanage in Nagaland is one of those. Partnering with the Elisha Foundation and the Rhymers in Ukraine is one of those. Partnering with the Everett Gospel Mission is one of those. Being part of a church network like the Three Strand Network is one of those partnerships. Our support of other church plants are those partnerships. Our sending of short-term mission teams, whether that's to India or Ukraine or wherever it is, are forming these gospel partnerships. And it is still the same apostolic mission. We are just living out the pattern that is left for us in the New Testament as the people of God. We have a part to play. And that needs to stay at the forefront of our minds as a church. We are part of the apostolic mission. And were Paul writing this to us, to Crossway, he would be saying, I want to make Linwood the next launching pad. Imagine that. Linwood, Rome, pretty similar, right? Okay. So Paul establishes a bond through his apostolic mission. Secondly, he establishes a bond through vivid example. Through vivid example. The main thought in verses 22 through 29 is, I'm coming to see you. I'm coming to see you. Paul's ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum is, of course, what has hindered him from coming to visit already, but... He has no more work in these regions. It's all covered. Anywhere I go to really spread, the, preach the gospel is already under someone's ministry. And I've desired for many years, he says. I've wanted to come. This has been a long time goal of Paul's. And so, verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Paul's ministry on the whole is not completed. He's still going. He sees Spain as his next field of operation for the gospel. Now, don't think that Paul is, has some ulterior motives here. It sounds like it, doesn't it? He says, hey, I'm coming to see you so that you can help me get to Spain. He is, remember, at writing a letter, Paul is compacting information into what is now already a very long letter. And so his desire to spend time in their company is not an insincere desire. 
he does intend to enjoy their company, to fellowship with them, to get to know them, to serve them, to teach them. Can you imagine if Paul said, I'm coming to visit Crossway? What would you want to ask him? I'd be first in line. I'd go without food. I'd go without sleep. Right? I think most of us would. So Paul is coming. He's going to give of himself to them. But he also wants to introduce their role in his ministry of preaching the gospel. And so he's saying, look, in fact, Paul is not being uh, mercenary. He's not. He's saying right up front, look, I'm coming to see you, but part of it is the goal to which God has called me. Do we as a church recognize when God calls somebody that that isn't a sentimental relationship? We have a partnership with that person and need to respond to it. And not just see somebody who is endeavoring to do the work of God as somebody who's always asking for money. But as someone who is establishing partnership and is aiming to fulfill what God has called them to do and to be. This is what Paul means by helped. I I look to be helped on my journey. He's talking about financial assistance. He's He's asking the Rome, he's saying to the Romans, I'm hoping that you guys will take up a collection And help fund, because it's going to cost money for me to travel to Spain. It's going to cost money for me to stay somewhere in Spain, lodging and food, while I preach the gospel. That's what he's talking about. Now, in verse 25, there's a snag. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Let's talk about this aid to the saints. This aid was actually a collection of funds from the Gentile churches, mostly Gentile churches, that Paul had planted in these provinces of Macedonia and Achaia, which is mostly modern-day Greece and a little bit north of Greece, into Albania. Those would have been these provinces in the Roman Empire. So the churches that would have been included here are Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, These are all names that are familiar to us who know the Bible at all. Paul writes to most of these churches, especially the church at Corinth. They would have been probably the megachurch, if you will, in this region. So Paul has done this collection. He's written, and you'll find references in these various letters to this collection. And Paul has actually done a lot of the legwork and sent Titus to do a lot of the legwork, if you follow the the train of history in the New Testament, to put this collection together and to communicate among these churches. So this is kind of an ancient GoFundMe. That's what it is. It's for the saints in Jerusalem who are suffering because they had come under a lot of persecution. Now, part of it was persecution for being Christians. A lot of it was persecution for being Jewish. But if you were a Jewish Christian, the the people didn't really care. You were getting persecuted one way or the other. 
and that had a, an economic effect on many of the Christians in Jerusalem. They were suffering poverty. And so Paul has appealed to all of these Gentile churches in these different regions and said, we need to help the believers in Jerusalem. Let's take up a collection. Paul probably wishes he had a GoFundMe. It would have been a much simpler. But Paul has done all of this work. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, he gives some specific instructions about this collection. Listen to what he writes in 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. So the Galatian churches are also included in this. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So here's Paul working out the transferring of these funds. And what he's saying is, look, as you want to give, set it aside, have it organized so that when I get there, it's not about, well, this person said this much. we got to go hunt them down and figure it out. Have it all set aside so we can just come through and go, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then you will pick the delegation from Corinth. And if I need to go with them, I'll go with them. So, so there is this organization going on about this collection. And according to 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, Paul has to exhort the Corinthians to follow through. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, of course, are where we find many of these verses about giving with a cheerful heart. God loves a cheerful giver. Talking about generosity. All of those instructions about generosity and providing financially for other believers and for the work of the ministry and all of that that we get out are all in the context of this collection. All of those instructions. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he writes this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So even though Paul has called upon them to give to the suffering believers in Jerusalem, they've been suffering also, but they've still given generously. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. In other words, Titus is carrying this letter of 2 Corinthians, and Paul is saying, I've sent him partly to help you follow through on your commitment. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's a theology of finance right there. 
And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Paul's saying that the whole idea started with you. The Corinthians had actually started this thing. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now watch what Paul does. Paul is saying this. I want you to know, Corinthians, that all of these other churches, even in their poverty, a poverty you don't know, you're not experiencing, have given generously and sacrificially. And I'm not saying this as a way of a command about how much you should give or anything like that. But I want you to see that this is an example of what it means to be earnest and have a love that is genuine. He points to their vivid example for the Corinthians and says, Titus is going to help you be faithful and finish what you started. Okay, So you can see that this collection forms a significant event in the backdrop of New Testament history. Part of the reason Paul writes to the Romans is because he's saying, I'm planning to visit, I'm planning to visit, and that has a view to future ministry westward to Spain, and I can do this because the this collection is now completed. It's all taken care of, and Paul is probably writing from Greece, where he has finally gotten all of these funds amassed together and is now prepared to deliver this collection to Jerusalem and then make his way to Rome and then launch to Spain. So, again, though, the question is, why is all of this significant? On the surface, again, it's very practical, isn't it? Paul is giving them an itinerary. This is why I'm hindered. This is where I'm going. This is why I'm doing it. At kind of a second level, Paul is presenting, watch, a tangible result of a theological reality. Did you catch it in verse 27? Where he says, For they were pleased to do it, indeed they owe it to them. These Gentile churches owe it to the Jewish believers. What does he mean by that? For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. What is Paul saying? Well, now, Crossway, those of you who have been around for this series in Romans, where has Paul already hit on this? Several times. Back in chapters 2 and 3, again, especially in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Remember the olive tree. They've been broken off a branch so that you could be grafted in. All as a warning to Gentiles not to get arrogant about their place as though, though the Jews have been broken off, God intends to graft them back in. And that their loss has been the gain of the Gentile world so that God could create the church in Christ, this new humanity, this new person. So in that sense, then, the Gentiles owe it to them. 
It's only morally right. Because they have experienced the spiritual blessings of Israel's hope. The Messiah has come through them. The gospel has come through them. It's only right then that when they as a people group are suffering, that the Gentile churches should give of their material blessings. So, this debt ties them together. Again, it creates a bond between, or a partnership in the gospel between Jew and Gentile, Jewish believers and Gentile believers. Paul is simply now has written 14 chapters to make sense of this collection. But there's a third level, if you will, or a deeper implication even. And what is it? Paul is hoping for financial assistance from the Romans because he has a mission. So this collection and this tangible theological reality provides a vivid example of what their role should be. What the role of willing, sacrificial generosity plays in partnering in the gospel mission. In fact, the word that Paul uses here for contribution and share is the word koinonia, from which we get fellowship, partnership. That's the word Paul uses. This is a gospel partnership. And Paul is saying, look, there will be no apostolic twisting of the arm. Paul wants it to be a willing gift, not as an exaction, which is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 4, about their giving. Because in the same way, here's the example, here's the pattern that Paul is appealing to. In the same way that the Gentile churches of Macedonia and Achaia are partnered up, by God's design with the Jewish believers, so the Romans and Paul have been partnered up by God, including financial assistance. This is a divine precedent. This is a pattern that Paul is very wisely and subtly setting before them. It's an invitation. He's establishing a bond. He's not just asking for money. He's saying this is the way the gospel moves forward. He is establishing a bond through vivid example. And he's saying, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. This isn't just me asking for money. I'm bringing blessing. That's the fulfillment of my calling. Can I just say, and I want to take a moment, I, I praise Crossway Fellowship for your generosity. For a smaller church, we well support a number of missions and gospel partnerships. And I have found year after year, situation after situation, that when Crossway Fellowship is appealed to by need, by gospel going forth, you guys respond. You guys are exemplary as a church. And I like being able to say that as a pastor. I like that it is a mark of this body that we are generous 
and that we see eternity, right? So Paul is not just laying out here an itinerary. He's not just explaining why he's going to Jerusalem. He's saying this is a pattern, and we have the same bond. And I'm letting the Lord take this vivid example and work it into your soul so that when I come, you're ready. Okay. Thirdly and lastly, Paul establishes a bond through united prayer. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. <laughs> okay, so Paul is saying, I don't just want you praying the same prayers I'm praying for the gospel, but on my behalf. Verse 31, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. Paul is saying, I want you to join with me in interceding for this work because first of all, my life's in danger. I'm a marked man when it comes to Jerusalem and its surroundings, the uh, region. I'm a marked man in Judea. And I want you to pray that the Lord will keep me safe and that I'll have a fruitful ministry. Not only that the money and funds will get there safely, which was part of the prayer, but that it will bear fruit. It'll be acceptable to the saints, that they'll recognize it for what it is. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in the community of the churches of that entire known world at the time. That they'll know. And ultimately, that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. See, even the Apostle Paul needs prayer. He needs the prayers of the churches to fulfill his mission for safety, for fruitfulness. When he says, pray together with me, Paul is not just after the goal of what they're praying for. Again, there's something implicit in this, and it's this. Paul is moving them to align their hearts with God's purpose. By joining together with him in praying for this mission to Jerusalem, this delivery of this collection, as well as then the freedom and safety to come to Rome to see them and then to launch to Spain, Paul is saying that by praying with me, together with me, brings my calling, God's purposes, and your hearts and your desires into alignment. So join me in praying. He wants them to see and discern chapter 12, verse 2, the will of God that is good and pleasing and acceptable. That's what Paul is calling for here. Pray for me. But not just pray for me, join me in praying for this. Because when you do, my will, which is God's calling and purpose, and your wills and readiness are now brought into alignment by praying for this. Let us pray to the same end. Let us have the same hearts. 
then they're not just always praying for broken arms, financial situations. Those are all real, and we should pray for those things. But some of our prayer has to be dedicated to the big picture, doesn't it? We have to see what God is doing, his eternal purposes in the gospel, even in a secularized culture where the gospel is more and more becoming rejected and suspect. But we should be praying to that end, and we should join together and align our hearts in prayer with God's purposes. These are the ways in which gospel partnerships are formed, forged. Let us pray. Lord, there is so much in even Paul's practical plans and itinerary in these verses. He never writes without eternal purpose. And it is why, Lord, that you have preserved these words for us, even today, your church. That we might see the value of the gospel, the supreme value and power of the gospel as it continues to go forth. Lord, help us to see, not only as individuals, but as a church, as a congregation, how you would call us to participate and partner in the work of the gospel. Help us to be faithful and to not become discouraged or to lose sight of why we give, even financially, to ministries and partners in this work. Lord, all of this is made possible because of your grace. Your grace that is a calling, your grace that has enabled our hearts to respond to the, the call of the cross, to repent of sin, to embrace forgiveness, to know what it means to be cleansed and to be restored to you. Receive our worship as pleasing offerings. In your name we pray, amen.